When you are staring down a major life decision and you have many options on the table and not a lot of clarity on which one you need to take and you decide, I need to spend some time with someone, you start scrolling through the list of contacts on your phone, do you call up your friend that has the spiritual gift of complication? When you're working through a complicated relational situation, maybe it's with the people that you work with, maybe it's with your family, are you going to call your friend that seems to, with one unintentional word, seem to blow everything up and make things far more complicated than they need to be and leave you feeling far more confused than you were going into the conversation? No, you're not going to call them. Complexity is something in our world today that is not in short supply. But simplicity is. There's one man who says that anyone, any fool can make something complex, but it takes a real genius to make something simple. That's so true. I remember uh, it was a few years ago. And I was getting back into working out. And I was doing some lifting and, and I was at a point that I needed to, some help. And I, I was looking to take that next step because I, I wasn't seeing the returns on my investment. And I was trying to understand why I wasn't. So I went to my friend who's one of those guys that was as, his chest was as big around as he was tall. He didn't really have a neck. <laughs> And I thought, this guy would be a great guy to talk to. Maybe he can help bring some clarity to my situation, to my confusion. So I asked him, would you help me? And what ended up happening was he provided a 30-plus page document to me detailing the list of, uh, of supplements that I would need to be taking, the dietary changes that I needed to make, and all the different lifts that I was going to need to be doing. Now, I looked at this, and it didn't take me very long, and a few minutes on YouTube to look at some of the lifts that he wanted me to do. I couldn't even find anything on how to do most of them <laughs> to know that this guy just overcomplicated the problem. I began imagining my life trying to take supplements this many times a day, or eating in this particular way, or working out this amount. And this guy had taken what I thought would be a very simple conversation and complicated it to the point that it just left me feeling depressed. Because at its core, what he did was not actually address the issue that I was facing, which was a hard issue. I was a little bit lazy and didn't want to put in the time, and I like to eat. I do, and it's challenging to just put behavior modification stuff out in front of people when they have a heart issue that they're trying to deal with. And one of the things that's challenging for me as a pastor is I feel like all too often we t do exactly what my friend did to me with people and their spiritual lives. People come to the church looking for help, looking for simplicity, looking for clarity in the midst of their journey, looking for help to, to, to help make sense of the world in which they're living. And far too often, we give them a 35-page behavior modification plan. 
that leaves people feeling much more confused than they were at the beginning. There's a drift in humanity towards complexity. When we're left to our own devices, we just can't help but overcomplicate things. And it's a part of why I find myself turning to Jesus so often. Because in a world that seems to make things complex without any effort, Jesus has this way of narrowing and simplifying things and boiling it all down to to very meaningful, bite-sized things that I can wrap my head around and do. But mind you, that simplicity is not easy. It's actually incredibly hard. I have a friend who regularly says, if it's simple, but it's hard, you know the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And today, we are going to be digging into a passage of scripture where Jesus, the master of simplicity, is going to be engaging with a group of people that are a lot like us in many ways and are masters of complexity. They're masters of uh, of adding things for us to do, of behavior modification. And we're going to see as these forces collide what happens. And we're going to be forced to deal with what are the real source of our problems, which is not in our behavior, but it's actually in our hearts. So before we do that, I want to extend a warm welcome to our brothers and sisters at the Kent campus this morning. Uh, We're glad that you are joining us. Many of you knew or were expecting to see Jesse this morning, uh, but Jesse's grandmother passed away this Wednesday evening, and so Jesse is actually down in Florida uh, at her funeral right now. So I'm sure that you all understand. And uh, so I, we're always told not to apologize for being on stage. So I'm sorry that I'm here with you guys, uh, <laughs> but because uh, I know you were expecting Jesse, but I'm I'm grateful to be with you. I miss you guys, and uh, looking forward to seeing you next week. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Mark chapter 7? We're going to get kicked off there. And in verse 1, it says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. Now we're introduced to a couple of characters here that we've heard from before in the scriptures and that if you have been a believer for some time, you have heard about all, a lot, the Pharisees and the scribes. They were the religious leaders of their day, and Jesus' most famous opponent. They've made their way into common vernacular in our time. People say, you're a pharisaical, or you're a Pharisee, which is just used to say you're a hypocrite. And rightfully so. These people uh, really struggled, and Jesus saved many uh, of his most scathing critiques for this group of people. But I actually wanted to take a second and help us put a little bit of flesh on this group of people because the scary reality for all of us is that if you were to look back at the first century into the religious groups of the day, the Pharisees were probably the people that were most like us. Yeah, that's tough. So during the first century, the Jewish people were facing an incredible problem. They were living in their promised land, but they were living in the promised land under the control of a foreign ruler, Rome. Now, in the Old Testament, one of the consequences for the the Jews when they were not faithful to the covenant was that God was going to discipline them and could send them into exile. 
And so we saw this in Babylon. We see that, that God is faithful to his promises and, and full, comes through on them. But this is a different type of exile. They're in their homeland. And in many ways, it's even more, uh, it, it, it's more depressing because they're living at home, but it's not their own. They have to ask the landlord to do everything. It's almost like they're under house arrest. They don't have the option of, of ruling and doing the things that they feel led to do, of practicing their faith the way that they would like to practice. Their, everything has to go through the Roman leadership. It was incredibly insulting to them as a people. And so the, the question of the day that the, the Jews had to deal with was, what are we going to do about Rome? And there was a belief that somehow we could get these people out of Rome. Everybody wanted them gone. But the question was, how are we going to do that? And so you had kind of four main groups of people that coalesced around the different methods of dealing with the Roman occupiers. And the first group was a group called the Sadducees. And the way that you can remember them is that they were Sadducee because they didn't believe in a resurrection. That's a good seminary joke if you're ever looking for one. <laughs> But the Sadducees were, were the, kind of at the, the top layer of leadership. They were the, the wealthiest of, of, of Jewish leaders. They helped run the temple. And they were a group of people that believed that the way to deal with Rome wasn't to kick them out. It was to accommodate to them. It was to simply meld their practices with the, the needs of Rome. And in doing so, they made themselves very wealthy. Rome loved that they wanted to do that because they were help, being a help to these people. And so you see these people, and if you go, go and go visit Israel, you can see their homes, the, the ruins of their homes. They were incredibly wealthy men who ruled the, 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 the temple with an iron fist. But they believed that accommodation was the best strategy. On the opposite side of the aisle, you had another group that were the zealots, and the zealots believed that the, the Jewish Messiah, when he came, was going to initiate a violent overthrow of the Roman Empire. That's why in the garden, uh, you see certain disciples when it comes time and they think as the, the Roman, our Romans are coming to take Jesus to crucify him, that now was the moment that Jesus was going to step up and violently overthrow Rome. They pulled their swords, they cut off Malchus's ear. And we see that Jesus didn't want anything to do with that. But there were disciples that were a part of this school that genuinely believed that the way that they were going to deal with Rome was to going to violently overthrow them and kick them out. You had two other groups. One was called the Essenes. And the Essenes were demonstrated by the group of John the Baptist and his disciples. And if you go to the Israel today, you can go to the caves of Qumran where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you can see where these people lived in the desert. And their primary concern was their personal holiness and piety. They have these huge baptismal wells that they would do for the ritual cleansing all the time. And they believed that effectively they couldn't do much about Rome. So they were going to withdraw and just go into the desert and avoid it. And practice their own piety and wait for God to deal with it in his time. And that brings us to the fourth group which is the group of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, different from all of them, were remaining engaged, but not engaged like the Sadducees were by accommodating. They believed that if, if Israel, 
the people of Israel could repent and become holy again and become faithful to the covenant by behaving, that God would return to the temple and he would empower them to overthrow Rome and they would again become the people of God in the, the land of Israel. So when you think of the Pharisees, yes, they were people that cared a lot about your behavior. So much so that they cared more about how it looked than the heart from which it was coming. But at its root, as with so many of us, there's, there's, a, there's a kernel here of something that's good. They had a desire for their people to be free. And for many of us, this is an important distinction and thing to, to remember, is that oftentimes things that start with a, a good nugget of truth don't always end up in a good place. Our intentions are important, but the outcome sometimes doesn't end up exactly where we would like it to be. But the Pharisees are now engaging with Jesus. And when they're engaging with Jesus and his disciples, they are asking the question that, that's motivated by, what are you doing to help us get Rome out of here? And their challenge is that they believe that they could behave their way into gaining God's favor and getting him to move. And in doing so, they accumulated a lot of additional religious practice and behavior. They made their faith complicated, unnecessarily complicated. And it says that the, the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, and they saw that some of his disciples with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Some of you germaphobes out there are finally going, the Bible is finally speaking my love language. We can talk about cleaning. Now, the thing that's important to remember is that we're talking to a group of people, or we're reading the, the, the words of a people that were living in a pre-scientific mindset. They may have had some awareness of germs, but not in the way that we do. They weren't washing their hands with, out of this sense of, well, I, I'm concerned that I'm gonna be ingesting disease, though I think that they had some awareness of it, but not the way that we do. Their concern was not germs. Their concern was ceremonial cleanliness. You see, the Jews, like us today, faced an intense problem. They served a holy God, a holy God who was perfect, a holy God who was so perfect that he demanded his people to be holy as he was holy. But we struggle with that, just like they did in their day. And there were many rituals and activities that were given and, and practiced as a part of this culture that were designed to demonstrate, to exhibit our desire to be holy, our desire to cleanse ourselves from within. 
And God gave some instructions even on when the priests were going to enter into the Holy of Holies, enter into the temple. He gave them some cleansing rites in Exodus 30 and Exodus 40. He gives some instructions around washing your hands and and cleaning your feet, which is intended to be symbolic of the inner cleansing that is supposed to be going on of repentance and confession and sitting before the Lord as blameless. And so what we see here is that at its root, there is some biblical mandate for washing. There's something healthy in these rites, but what had happened was that the Pharisees had complicated things. They had made and developed this elaborate rite of, or or ritual of hand washing that needed to be done multiple times a day in order to demonstrate that you were holy before God. Now, this portion uh, of, of the ritual had by and large been thought to be reserved for just the priests in the temple. But the Pharisees, who are at this point attempting to, to get everybody in Israel to be blameless, they're attempting to get everybody with the behavior modification program because remember, they're wanting God to return and free them from Rome, began taking these rules of ceremonial cleanliness and applying them to the entire people of Israel. Now, not unlike today, you can imagine the the majority of people who worked with their hands for a living having a hard time washing their hands multiple times a day and taking time away from what they were doing to simply be ceremonially clean. Imagine going to a job site today and finding a plumber or an electrician or anybody that's working, uh, working on a job site and saying, hey, we're gonna need you about four times today to spend half an hour to 45 minutes washing your hands, and if you don't, all the food that you eat is gonna be blasphemous. Go over like a lead brick. It's just not not helpful. And that's the context in, in which Jesus is engaging with these people, is that they are placing this burden on the people of Israel, this expectation, these religious practices on the people. And it was uh, incredibly, incredibly frustrating. In the Mishnah, if you go take a look at it, there are over 30 chapters devoted to these hand-washing rituals. 30 chapters devoted to hand-washing rituals. I mean, hand-washing is important. I'm a fan of it. But 30 chapters? I mean, that's just, that's overwhelming. I, I wouldn't get through half a paragraph, to be honest with you. It's fine, I'll wash my hands, probably use some hand sanitizer, but just not my bag. But the, the thing in this that's important to note, ritual itself is not wrong. We have brothers and sisters in the faith who practice rituals. We have rituals that we do with baptism, communion, uh, which we're gonna be taking next week. But the the problem with ritual, or the good thing about ritual, is that it's able to take transcendent truths and incarnate them into a moment, make them tangible. Uh, There's a commentator that says, ritual is the poetry of religion. When one wants to encapsulate a major teaching or incarnate it, we make a ritual of it so that we can pass it on. Here's the body and the blood of Christ. We don't believe it's the real body and the blood of Christ. It's symbolic of the body and blood of Christ. 
when we baptize someone, we don't actually believe that they're dying when they go into the water. That would be pretty crazy. <laughs> and we don't, it, it's symbolic of our identification with Jesus in his death. And when we come up, it's symbolic of our identification with him in his resurrection. Ritual is not bad in and of itself when it's symbolic, but it's a problem, and it becomes a real problem when ritual becomes causative. When we begin to think that the ritual is causing certain things. And what we're seeing here is that they were believing that the ritual of hand washing was causing spiritual cleanliness. And that's a problem. They were believing that religious behavior was actually creating a condition of the heart that you and I all both know is not possible. Washing your hands, going to church, doing all the religious activity can't clean our hearts. And what they were actually beginning to buy into uh, in, in the religious world, we would, we would call it superstition. It's no different than believing if I walk under a ladder that bad things are going to happen. Or if I drop a mirror that something, I'm going to have seven years of bad luck. It's, it's not real. I, I'm not saying that anybody who's broken a mirror doesn't, may not have had some bad luck. I mean, th there's a reason why some people think this. But it's magical thinking. We're believing that this act and the consequences of it that are, are related when there's, there's nothing that's there. These Pharisees believe that by adding ritual, by adding religious behavior to the docket of things that everybody needed to do, that they were going to make their hearts clean. And we know that that's not possible. I'd like to say that we're different today but we all know that there's nothing new under the sun. And we fall prey to the trap of thinking that religious behavior, religious activity, can actually make our hearts clean too. It's very easy for me as a pastor to look at the end of my week and go, well, I work at a church. Done some good stuff. Done my duty. And it's dealt with the heart issue that I have. It's just not true. It doesn't deal with that. And Jesus has a problem with it. Jesus has a real problem with it. And there are three specific problems with the Pharisees and their hand-washing laws that he has. And the first is that their religious behavior did not reflect the state of their hearts. And this is the, that hypocrisy critique. They were behaving in a particular way. They were acting religiously but their hearts were far from them. It says, and he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Jesus is quoting one of the most scathing critiques of his people from the book of Isaiah. It's scathing. And it's often easy for us to pass over these things in the name of actually wanting to declare that God is love. But remember that God's love is fierce. God's love is holy. And God is calling us to a higher standard, particularly those who are members of his household. And just, I want to read 
uh, the, the passage the, directly from it because it, it sheds some light on what Jesus is saying. And it says in Isaiah 1.13, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot en- endure iniquity in Solomon's assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of burying them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. If the figure in your mind when you think of God is unable to speak these words, you are mistaking God's mercy for passivity. God takes religious behavior very seriously, and he appreciates it, but he does not appreciate it when we do all these things and our hearts are far from him. He doesn't appreciate it when we come and sing and uh, our hearts are thinking about the masters, which a problem for me this morning, wondering how Tiger Woods is doing. <laughs> he doesn't appreciate it when we're, we're serving the poor and we're doing it for reasons that are not a, a reason of intimacy with him. You read this, and man, there have just been times in the, the history of the church that you just go, well, you, you know, where all the battles over like contemporary worship and hymns or small groups and all these different ways of doing church. And God's sitting here going, I despise all of that if it's not done with the right heart. We can do all of the right things with the wrong heart, and it will not please God. And that's one of those realities that's incredibly simple but is profoundly challenging. It's profoundly challenging because at its root, it's dealing with something that I'm having a very hard time changing, that I have a very hard time making my heart to, to, to act or to, to think, to feel the way that it should feel. But the question that we all at or we're asked, I believe, when we encounter texts like this is to ask the question, where is your heart? Where was it as we worshiped this morning? Where is it now as you listen to the word of God being spoken? Is it near to him? Or is it far from him? You have the choice this morning to change that. You don't have to continue another moment. And you can come before the Lord out of a place of intimacy because that's what you have as a believer. You're not working for it, you're working from it. The first step is just that you have to be honest and rip off the mask that all of us wear from time to time to make it look like we're behaving even when our hearts are far from him. The second issue that Jesus has with them is that they were teaching the traditions of man as superior to the commandments of God. In verse 7, it says that you're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. 
And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Jesus is bringing up an issue from his day uh, of a situation where if people had declared that something was Corban, meaning devoted fully to God, that, that somebody was going to give this uh, to God. And an issue came up with the parents that the, the children could not use what had been given to God to care for their parents. And, and Jesus is saying that when you do that, you're actually taking this tradition that you've made and you're putting it above the word of God, which is the call to care for your parents, to honor them, and you negate it. And it's easy oftentimes for us to get a sense of historical superiority, thinking that, oh, that's something that they do there. But the reality is, is that it's something that we do here. We complicate things all the time. And sometimes it's tough, and it's a part of our Christian subculture that that we have certain things, certain traditions that we actually put on par with the Word of God. Now, I'm going to go somewhere for a second that that might be easy to to mistake what I'm saying, but this is something that the Christian subculture has done with alcohol. You take a look at the, the biblical commandment is not to get drunk, not to live a lifestyle of drunkenness. And some of you guys know the real consequences of that, and it's terrible. And that's the area you look at, you know, you think about drawing a box that Jesus, or that God in the Bible is saying, don't step into that box. When you step into the box of drunkenness, you are now sinning. But what the Pharisees did, and they literally called it drawing a fence around the Torah. And so it was, so this box is wrong, drinking is wrong, but what we don't want to do is, the easiest way not to, or not to get drunk is just not to drink. So now, drinking is wrong, okay? And the easiest way not to drink, let me step a little bit further back, is not to hang out with people who drink. And the easiest way to not hang out with people that drink is to hang out with people that look like you, act like you, think like you. Do, do you see how all of a sudden... You begin walking your way back and adding all of these regulations on top of what was there in the scriptures. Now, please hear me. If you have to have some of those regulations in your life because you struggle with alcohol, I honor you. And that's healthy. And that, that, that's good. But the problem comes when we begin putting our traditions on par with the word of God. And we begin judging people for going to a bar or for hanging out with people that drink as if that itself is getting drunk or unequal to getting drunk. We cannot take the traditions of man and put it on par with the word of God. Doesn't mean that there's not value in the traditions, but we cannot place it on top of the word of God and say that it's more important. Specifically with drinking, you're gonna have a hard time because Jesus was called a drunk because he was hanging out with drunk people. He cares about those people. He got close to them. He wasn't a drunk, I don't believe, at all. And so please hear me. Don't send me emails this week saying, 
pastor's encouraging me to drink. That is not the case. <laughs> I'm just trying to draw a, a, an example from our lives that it's very easy to put our traditions on top of the word of God and begin judging people based on our expectations of what Christian behavior should look like and not what the word of God says about Christian behavior. It's very easy to do. And Jesus did not appreciate it. The third issue that he had is that there was a misunderstanding, they were, or that the, the Pharisees were misunderstanding the nature of the problem itself of what makes someone unclean before the Lord. And it says that, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they are what defile a person. The Pharisees believed that the root cause of their problem was behavior, that it was their behavior that made them unclean. And Jesus is saying that it's not your behavior that makes you unclean, though that is a problem, but it's what's inside that's the problem. It's your heart that is the problem. The problem is not what goes on outside of us. The problem is what's going on inside of us that makes us impure. And if you're here today, and by chance you're wrestling with your faith in God, my sense is that if you search your heart, you know that this is true. You know that when you look out at the world, when you look at the, the issues that we are facing today as a country, name one of them that at its core is not an issue of the heart. We don't have to get political. It's just simply saying that over and over and over again, it comes back to issues of the human heart. And far too often, as Christians, we fall prey to the pharisaical belief that we can legislate people to having a holy, clean heart. We watch tragedy befall us, and we go, oh, we need more laws. And you just... Over and over again, we grieve that there is nothing in our world that can deal with the condition of the human heart, which is dark. I believe every person here, even if you're not a believer, you know at some gut level that this is true. And this should leave all of us just a, a little despondent <laughs> because what do we do? 
What do we do about the human heart? What are we going to do uh, about the issues that are really plaguing us? Because we can't just medicate our way to a better reality. We can't legislate our way to a better reality. Those, all those things can be helpful and are important. We've got a heart issue. And we need something or someone that can deal with the condition of our hearts if any of those things are ever going to change. Far too often, religion looks just like the political world, looks just like many, many things in the medical world, is that we treat the symptoms and not the root cause. But there's hope. There's hope. And this was a major revelation for me years ago because I had been brought up in a church that preached the gospel, that talked about a new life in Christ, but I, I don't know that I had ever dug into what was actually at the root of the new covenant. God had made this old agreement with, with the people, and when Jesus came, he fulfilled the old covenant and ushered in an era of a new covenant that did something significantly different than the old one. And, and if you dig into passages in the Old Testament that prophesy and speak to what is coming in the new covenant, oftentimes we miss out at what the core of it is, which is that God is giving us a new heart. He's going to rip out that old heart of stone and he's going to put in you a heart of flesh. And just listen to these words in Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel picks up on this in his prophetic oracle and he says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus could have come and given us an entire new book of rules for us to follow. He could have complicated things to the point that it would lead us just down the same path that Israel went down, which was despondency, which was a complete inability to do what it is that God wanted us to do. But Jesus didn't come and give us more laws. Jesus came and he gave us a new heart. He took the engine that you had in your vehicle and he, that, that's not working, that's broken, that can barely get started, and he put a new engine in there that now revs it, you know, it's like Jesse's car. It revs powerfully, and it's connected with God. And if you have given your life to Jesus, you have a new heart. There's still other pieces of you that are not gonna be sanctified until on the other side of death, but at the core of who you are, something new, you've been born again. Yet most of us struggle to live out of that. But God came not to complicate 
not to add more religious activity to what we would have to do, but actually to do something incredibly simple, but something that only the God of the universe could do. God didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And that's what the new covenant is. It's saying, I'm gonna change you from the inside out. And that is good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we marvel at how you are able in a simple act to do something that none of us could do on our own. And that's to make us right before you. Jesus, I thank you for your righteousness that uh, I've done nothing to deserve but that you have given to me and I, I'm overwhelmed and undeserving. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has not made a choice to follow you and is saying, I want that new heart, I pray that you would just create a growl inside of them, a hunger inside of them for you, for more of you. And that they would find themselves on their knees crying out for you and that you would meet them in those moments. Thank you, Lord, for not leaving us in our distress. Thank you for not leaving us to our own devices. We worship you, we honor you, and we bless you this morning. And in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.